Hey guys, it's Ari Savia and you're listening to the All Blacks Podcast. Hello and welcome to All Blacks Podcast. I'm Andy Burt and today I'm joined by World Rugby CEO Brett Gosper. Brett, welcome to the show, mate. Yeah, good. Good to be on the show and good to be in New Zealand again. Hey Brett, can you just tell us what you're doing uh, down under? Well, we, we don't come out as often as we'd like to, but um, good to come out in this part of the world about uh, at least once a year. Uh, we've been in Sydney up until today doing broadcast conversations for 2019, trying to sign our deals up there in Australia, but also New Zealand as well. They're two countries we haven't signed our deals yet. So doing that, also it was regrouped with the Sevens in Sydney. So I had a look at those over the couple of days and we'll be able to also look at the Sevens here in Hamilton for its uh, for its starter event uh, on Saturday at least and then and then head out, uh, unfortunately, before the Sunday happens. But And also to meet... Uh, new CEO uh, ran in Castle in Australia, so it was good to connect with her. And Steve was part of those meetings too, Steve Chu. So uh, it, it's been a, a good time to come come down here and see what's going on. I know you have to be objective in your role as World Rugby CEO, but how good for Australia to take out those two titles last week? Yeah, no, we can we can be subjective on that as well because uh, actually we like the home side doing well. It's always good for those tournaments when the home side does well, no matter where the tournament is. Um, but good for Australia, obviously for the tournament, but also nice for, for Raylene as she kicks off her, her tenure there. And actually it saw Bill Polveroff, so he was pleased. But to have the women and the men win the same tournament it hasn't happened before, so fantastic for them. And as a bit of background on yourself for the fans out there listening, but can you tell us uh, where you grew up and your earliest rugby memories? Sure. I, I grew up in Sydney and Melbourne, Melbourne not being a rugby town, but I first started playing sport in, in uh, Sydney, so... Uh, started playing there when I was about six or seven years old and took that through schooling in Melbourne, went to school in England for a couple of years, which probably hooked me into rugby more than Aussie rules, which I kind of flirted with both. Um, was lucky enough to represent Victoria, uh, Australia under 21, played in two Wallaby trials, one for the first Wallaby tour to Argentina. We're talking just after the war, obviously. Um, and, uh, and, and an England tour in the early 80s, both of which I missed selection for, and then um, decided I'd go and get fit at 21 for the next uh, push for, for a Wallaby jersey in the early 80s and went to France to play for the racing club where Dan Carter plays now. Um, was not quite the same salary at the time as, as, as he's on now, but I ended up staying in, in England and, and, and playing about nine seasons with the racing in Paris, which was at the time the top the top club in the country and it was a great experience and uh, that, that's that's it in a nutshell there, there you have it and uh, the racing club back then they used to not, well you can probably shed some light on this but they used to play in bow ties is that correct that's right that was the era that i was playing what what we did was we exploited the fact that we were considered the the kind of precious parisian team because all the rugby's down in the southwest really so we would play up to that and you know, play in pink bow ties and Bermuda shorts and pull off all sorts of stunts in games that would, would work up the opposition but actually put a bit of good pressure on us to win games. And we ended up playing in a number of finals in that era because of that and, and actually transcending the sport a little bit of club rugby in France and getting some notoriety, but it was, it was all very effective stuff. So there's a brand now called Eden Park, very related yeah. to uh, New Zealand, run by Frank Minnell, who's the French player at the time, who was in our team at the time. Now, when you were in Australia, some pretty outstanding players in that era, the Allied brothers, I guess, Nick Farr-Jones and the likes of that. Um, how was that era for Australian rugby? It was a great era for Australian rugby, not a good era if you're trying to get into a, a, either a Wallaby side or a Queensland. So I spent a lot of time on the bench for Queensland because you had, uh, in those days, Andrew Slack and Michael O'Connor, 
Um, in what position were you? I was a centre. Um, could was always willing to play on the wing if that was the only way to get into a team, so I could just about get away with that. But it was a pretty strong bench. Yes, you had all all of the Ella brothers, um, as I said, you know, the O'Connors, the Hawkers, the Slacks, um, you know, Roger Gould. Um, yeah, there was a big reservoir of players, even though there was sometimes a bit of a drain going off to rugby league at that time that would provide some opportunities. It was a tough time, but you know, it was that era where they grand slammed over in in England, it was that schoolboy side that was very famously grand slammed across England that, that grew up and became a, a, a force um, around the world. So uh, it was an exciting time to be playing rugby, but a tough one if you were seeking selection. And in New Zealand, we've always had a very strong domestic competition at NPC, you know, th- over three divisions across the whole country. But in Australia, can you just explain a bit more about your setup, how you go from club into the Wallabies, particularly back in the 1980s and 1990s? Well, it was, it was very simple then. You, you played club rugby in one of the cities. Mostly it happened in Brisbane and Sydney. From there you'd be selected to the state side. If you were selected to the state side, it usually meant only really two state sides that were contending with reservoirs of players that could play for the Wallabies. So really it was Queensland, New South Wales. So the strength of Australian rugby was the fact that there was only really two states and therefore, a bit like the Sheffield Shield cricket at the time, intense competition versus some of the other countries where they were where they were having competitions that, that, that had a number of entities. Um, the focus and concentration in Australia fielded some, some very good sides and, the, and it meant either the New South Wales or the Queensland side were, you know, there were 10 or 12 Wallabies in each of those teams that had toured or played or capped and so on. So it was a very high standard to watch and play in. Uh, if you were from Victoria like I was or even Canberra or any of the other southern states and western states, it was unlikely that you would uh, you'd get a look in, and hence I think they used to push for trials. That would be maybe a political gift to some of the unions on the outside, but it was very very hard to force your way in. Mm. Um, obviously, a lot more complex and a lot and a, and a lot you know a lot of complexity in the way players' paths are built now through academies and and, and the franchises. And now there's an NRC in Australia, so it's it's it's, it's a tougher program. It was easier to find your way suddenly to Wallaby side in those days for sure. Yeah. Or something that was certainly working with two World Cups in the 1990s. But hey, looking at your time as CEO of World Rugby, so since 2012, um, what, what are your highlights in that time? Um, I'd say certainly the, in, the inclusion in the Olympics and our first appearance at the Olympics since 1924. Uh, obviously, I don't remember that, but it was great to see the sport on that stage and... Um, yeah, that was a, a massive boost for the sport, which I can, which I can talk about a little bit. Um, the World Cup in England was a scale we'd never seen before as well. So they're, they're two very, very uh, big events um, that I'm proud of the way both of them have, have operated. And I think, you know, the new, the next World Cup will be in very new territory, you know, really out of our comfort zone, comfort zone as a sport. And I think getting that across the line in the right way will be will be a major achievement. Um, you know, along the way, I think we've 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 kicked some good goals in the areas of, of of player welfare. I think the seven series itself has gone from strength to strength. Certainly, the the emergence of women's rugby uh, has has been a, a, a fantastic thing to to help grow, but 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 be part of that. Um, I also think we've we've focused on some of the emerging markets that we hadn't done so much in the past. You know, we have a, a you know strong programs and a strong awareness of what how rugby can build again, outside of the traditional markets in places like like China, like Russia, like Brazil, um, India, uh, we're focusing more on and so on because ultimately if we can grow these markets, there'll be more money for everyone 
that comes back in broadcast revenues at Rugby World Cup time. So that's our responsibility, not just to, 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 to engage with the usual suspects, but to actually stick our necks out and go to places that rugby's not traditionally happening in. And Sevens gives us that opportunity. Sevens tends to be the way emerging markets begin to engage with the sport. And once they understand it to a certain extent, whether they're players or fans, they move into the 15s arena a little bit. We know that if you grow the game, we've done a lot of research as well. We've tried to sophisticate our approach in many ways. We, we work on not just participation, which has doubled since 2009 globally from, from uh, up, up to 9 million, literally doubled in, in that period. Um, we're now very focused on the actual fan base and we do research to work out what is our global fan base and to segment the audience and so on. And we know that the only two events that give us a massive boost in our fan base, which is the commercial well-being of the sport, are the Olympics and the Rugby World Cup. And we've got about a, what we consider a 338 million fan base across the world. And the Olympics and World Cup each add about 30 million fans each time they take place. So six, six days of the Olympics is exactly the same increase in interest for the sport globally as six weeks of a Rugby World Cup. Uh, so it's an, quite an interesting comparison. It's interesting, the World Cup obviously is a Kiwi, I would have loved to have New Zealand take out the two medals, but Fiji winning that gold was one of the most amazing stories, I think not just in rugby, but it transcended rugby that, didn't it? Yeah, it was a super story, it was great to arrive at a World Cup and, and, and for rugby to provide the Olympics with one of their, one of their great stories and, and, it, and it will remain such over time. Um, I guess the dream, no, no, um, <laughs> no, what would I say, for, for, for England, I don't want to take anything away from England, it was great World Cup final, although they had a hard time of it against the Fijians, but in it secretly we were kind of thinking actually it might be quite nice to have the Fijians for the story and then the USA because, it, you know, in order to explode rugby in that market on the Olympic stage, might have been interesting to see them in the final, but that wasn't to be and we, we had a good final and a very, very good competitive competition. And looking at women's rugby as well, so great Rugby World Cup last year. We were all getting up in the middle of the night over in New Zealand to watch the Black Ferns take out that title. Great final against um, England. Um, can you talk to us about the growth of, I guess, women's rugby and that World Cup, how that helped in the growth of women's rugby last year? Yeah, the, I mean, again, it's surprising to people a little bit outside of the rugby franchise that that 9 million participation I talked about before is women are around 30% of that, and that really does surprise people out outside of the market. Uh, last year, for the first time in terms of registered players, because our participation includes non-registered players as well in all forms of rugby, in the registered player area, women out-registered men last year. There were more new registered women players than men across the world, and that's quite a striking statistic. Um, World Cup plays its role in that, as does the Seven Series. Yeah, it was an amazing World Cup final, and you know, in my view, personally, top three World Cup of any Gender um, that we've had in terms of the competitivity, the quality of the game, and just sitting on the edge of your seat. So fantastic win for the Kiwis. And uh, you touched on USA, but obviously that's a that's a focus for World Rugby. And we see, you know, Nate he Nate Ibner from the Super Bowl winning team was playing. You know, we've got players crossing codes to play rugby now. Um, and of course, two World Cups coming up in San Fran this year. But how important is USA for you? Well, USA is the a little bit the holy grail because we we feel that if we can if we can make things happen in the United States in the right way, then there will be very high uplift in our Rugby World Cup broadcast values, which obviously everything we make on a Rugby World Cup gets put back into the sport around the globe and accelerates that growth. So the trouble is, while it's the 
most sought-after market and the market where we could actually do brilliantly commercially is also the hardest market to break into because it's such a competitive sports market already with so many, uh, let's say, domestic sports and established sports entities. And so it's very difficult. But you know, we continue to try and push in that market. There's a there's a there's a major league rugby competition starting this year, which will be interesting. Around uh, six to eight teams, I think it is. Um, and we've got our San Francisco Rugby World Cup event there too. So whether it be through the Olympic profile, the Sevens Rugby World Cup, and, and, and generally to try and help the USA national team get some profile in a World Cup, um, it's, it's still a high priority for us to move that market for us. Absolutely. As, as a Kiwi, I mean, we're so rugby obsessed here that we love to hear about different nations that are into rugby. And um, one, for example, is Sri Lanka. That has um, Colombo has more Facebook followers of of the All Blacks in any city in New Zealand, which is incredible. Yeah, but can you just talk to us about some of those countries that may, we may be surprised to learn that uh, um, rugby's growing quite quickly? Yeah, I mean, yeah, Shranka is there. They're crazy about. There's a pro uh, seven circuit out there. Interesting enough, um, as there's a pro fifteens uh, co- contest in in Russia. That one of the reasons why you don't see a lot of Russian players playing in either the English league or the or the French league is because they've got an incredibly lucrative uh, competition of their of their own, and actually Siberia is actually the hotbed of a very cold hotbed of, uh, of 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 Russian rugby. But yeah, when we do the, the the research around the world, what you see is obviously the traditional markets. There's a very high penetration, but in absolute numbers of players, USA, China, and India, as you'd imagine, given their population size, far outweigh as do Brazil, Mexico. Uh, far outweigh uh, the numbers in markets like Australia, New Zealand, um, even England and France at, at some point. So, you know, we're, where we're seeing, I, I guess, interesting for us again as we try to see new teams come into the World Cup environment, the country like Germany, we were seeing television audience scores during the Olympics of about 4.5 million during the semi-finals, and there was no German team in it. We get 2.5 million uh, audiences occasionally during a Rugby World Cup from Germany. And German Germany's aside has been ranking pretty consistently around 22 mark. So that is a, a country where we see huge potential um, in terms of its player base and the return from um, broadcast. So, you know, it won't be too long, I don't think, before you'll see a Germany involved in whether it be a version of the Six Nations or, or, or actually tapping into the, into, into the World Cup itself. Brazil is another market like that, you know, huge population base, great uh, desire and profile of the game out there. Um, China, we've got a we we we've we've inked a deal with Alibaba, which is the Amazon of China. They have a sports marketing arm, and they've agreed to to invest 100 million US dollars in China over the next 10 years, and we're working pretty closely with them to do that. We're actually working on a kind of Master Sevens tournament for Shanghai at some point. So. You know, the, the, the possibilities outside of those traditional markets is, is quite high. Of course, we've got to look after our core markets and members, unions who have been, uh, let's say, generating those revenues for the international game over a period of time, but we must branch out and look at these opportunities, which are for the good of the game overall. And massive opportunity for the game to explode even more next year with the Rugby World Cup in Japan. Um, can you talk to us about... I'm guessing you've, of course, visited venues and things like that. Can you talk to us about how, how that's uh, progressing the World Cup? organization is progressing there? The World Cup is, is, is going well now. We've had, we had had some issues in the past. Um, it, it is a, the first time we've gone outside of a non-traditional market for a World Cup. 
Um, it's a relatively small union versus uh, the unions that we usually deal with in terms of host. Um, so it is totally a different context that we'll see a Rugby World Cup in, but it is a country that loves its rugby, has a pro competition, um, and, and, and has some very strong brands invested in the sport and, and companies invested into the sport. Um, culturally, linguistically, uh, not the easiest of, of, of places to do business, but once things start gelling and that, that relationship is built, um, you know, we've, 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 we're looking at an amazing World Cup. We think it's going to be spectacular, um, completely different to anywhere we've been before, but 12 amazing venues um, that have been modernised and updated where in the, in the coattails a little bit of probably the Olympics, uh, you know, from a, from a emerging and finding our place in the sun uh, next to the Tokyo Olympics, which are a year later, is not something we've ever had to dealt with, deal with before. We've often followed Olympics, and that's great because the ticketing market's conditioned and, and the local market's very hungry for a new big event. Um, here, uh, we have to work hard to ensure that the population knows there's a massive event, and it'll be the biggest event they've had in Japan since 2002 is happening, uh, despite the fact there's an Olympics a, a year later. But, we've, but it's all on track, as I say, fantastic, spectacular stadia that they'll play some of these games in from very traditional, almost bizarre-looking... A, a Japanese stadium which could unmistakably only be in Japan to the very futuristic Sapporo Dome up north which is you know, like a flying saucer. So you get the, the extremes of each um, but, but amazing backdrop for the sport. It'll be something. So whether you're watching on TV or travelling to Japan it's going to be a pretty unique experience? It'll look great and of course all the backstories uh, around it and the local towns and some of these towns are, are, are built on rugby and and uh, yeah, no, it's going to be it's going to be fabulously interesting. Uh, six weeks of rugby and stories around rugby and the, and the towns that are delivering the World Cup. And the trophy tour is just kicking off as well. Can you tell us a little bit about that? That's right. No, it's going through about eighteen different countries. And again, we use the trophy to raise the profile of the World Cup, but also to to raise the profile of rugby in some of those markets I was talking about before. It will go into and through the Germanys, the Chinas, uh, and, and and so on to ensure that people in those countries are aware there's a major event happening pretty soon. And uh, just moving on to, as a fan, um, so removing a world rugby hat, just as a fan, what's, um, I guess, the best atmosphere? And you've watched a lot of rugby, but what's the best atmosphere you've experienced live? I guess I'm probably still partial to, to, to Twickenham. I, I, I do like the... It, it is, you know, the, the traditional... I, I can't. I don't see it's the home. I guess that's where rugby started in England, so it is kind of the homeland of, of rugby. But the, I think the atmosphere during the, the World Cup in 2015 was, was possibly the best atmosphere, that I've seen. I'd say from a sevens tournament point of view, uh, actually the Commonwealth Games in Glasgow was an amazing sevens, uh, tournament and atmosphere. Um, but look, whenever you go to a rugby game, it's a full stadium. The atmosphere is very special. I was at the World Cup final here in 2011 as well before I was in this job, and that was a an amazing atmosphere. We all sat on the edges of our seats. It was that kind of a game. Um, but I'm fortunate that I, that I do get around the world and, and see the games in the best possible condition. And you, when you sit in front of a game, you don't quite look at it like you're you're a fan anymore because you're looking at things as, a, as an administrator that you wouldn't otherwise look at. But you do revert to fan type occasionally and get on the edge of your seat and just enjoy the game. And who are some of the players you've um, admired either playing with or that you've watched as a fan? Again, you know, New Zealand provides so many of, the, uh, of those players. We've seen Bowden Barrett win World Rugby Player of the Year over the last two years, and Dan Carter, 
before that, and you know you've delivered to the world such a such a wealth of talent. Um, they're the ones that come first to mind. Of course, in my own era, I can remember, you know, the the Ella brothers, and and and, and I was pre pretty focused on players in the in, in the Wallaby mix at that time. But um, look, there's there's such a great number. How can, who can you mention? I mean, there you know, uh, th there is a an explosion of, of, of talent across the world, and uh, whether it be club rugby or national rugby, uh, there's certainly no shortage. Of course, the sevens game is providing probably not giving those players the profile they deserve, but they're incredible athletes, as we saw, you know, players like Sonny Bill who moved back into the sport, and even Nate Ebner, as you were talking before, not that easy to, to just move into a sevens environment. They are incredible athletes, so maybe they're the superstars of the future as well. And finally, to finish off here, um, Brett, what's your vision for rugby, I guess, in about in 10 years' time? Look, the vision is to grow those markets that have been on the peripheral of, of, of rugby to make the game safer. Um, I think that's a focus that, that, we, that we have to make, that the shape of the game is, has opened up to such an extent that we've just got to be sure that we can prevent injuries, that is, you know, make sure that our players are safe. I think it is the safest the game has ever been, but you know, with the accelerated numbers of contacts, tackles and breakdowns and so on, in, unless we manage that environment, um, then we will see some injury increases and that's important that we manage that, whether it be general injuries in the area of concussion, where, where I think our protocols are world-class and we do lead the way. So, you know, player welfare, geographic growth, um, a, a, a better harmony between the pathways of club and country, um, you know, managing the player movement, hoping that we can, we can provide sustainable tournaments that keep players in their part of the world. That's not easy. We're finding that tough. But it's, but it's generally the geographic expansion and, of course, women bringing that 35% th that even higher and, and, and seeing the growth of the women's game and, and, and not just the number playing but the commercial values contributing to the overall pot for everyone um, that can ensure the sustainability of the sport. A lot of hard work but exciting times for rugby as well. Oh, yeah. So look, we're, we're dealing with growth uh, as a sport um, and how can we best manage that growth? And we almost can't do enough to keep it going. We're not in a defensive situation. We're very much on the attack, and that's a wonderful place to be for a sport. Brett, thanks for your time, and all the best in New Zealand, mate. Thank you very much. Thank you.